The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. And those of you who are spiritual one will bring the Bible, right? If not, just let me read it for you. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames and have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily anger. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always persevere. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, there will cease. Where there are tongues, there will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfection disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as is in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, we give you thanks for the blessings that you have given to each one of us. We give you thanks for the noises and the voices of our little ones, those gifts that you have given to parents. Teach us to rejoice with their voices and noises. Give you thanks for the church family, for the people who come to heighten our joy and lighten our load. Lord, there are many problems that are insurmountable. Humanly speaking, there are times we may be disappointed, perhaps lapse into despair, but teach us to fix our gaze upon Jesus Christ, who is love incarnate and who is graciousness and body. Teach us this morning as we open your word. Holy Spirit, be our instructor and comforter. Forgive the preacher for his sins are many. Forgive your people for our sins are many. We come to you not because we are perfect. Indeed, we are not. We come to you because we truly belong to you. And you truly belong to us. 
So, Lord, it is in that context of belonging to you that we think and move and have our worship. So grant us a listening ear, O Lord, and grant us an obedient heart. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. May I say that it's a delight to be with you. It's, uh, it's very hard to draw people out for an event like this. And I commend those people who work very, very hard behind the scene to make this event possible. Thank you, Joe. I don't know where he is. Uh, oh, Joe is right there. Yeah, he's alive too. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we'll be posthumously better. Uh, posthumously better. I like that word, posthumously. <laughs> Where was I? I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 13, not Joe Boot. About 15 years ago, I was on a flight to preach in Europe. I think it was still called Czechoslovakia. Now it's Czech and Slovakia. Czechoslovakia, the, the longest English word, right? Czechoslovakia. Now it's Czech and Slovakia. Sitting beside me were missionaries. They were also out somewhere preaching the gospel. And I was introduced to the story of Florence Olshong. Any, any Anglican here? Florence Olshong, one of the most distinguished Anglican women of the century. She was the one who founded St. Julian Community, and her, her influence was worldwide and far-reaching. The story went like this. As a young, fresh university graduate, Florence was commissioned to be sent out as a missionary to Uganda. When she arrived there, she discovered a serious problem that most missionaries have found, that it is harder to get along with one's colleague than it is to convert the unconverted. <laughs> Try it again. Some of you are slower for the slower amongst us. You see, when she was there, she found a serious problem that many missionaries have found, that it is harder to get along with one's colleague than to convert the unconverted. In her mission station, the senior missionary colleague had broken the nerves of seven of Florence's predecessors. Not one stayed there for more than two years. No doubt, this woman is a very devout and a brilliant leader. But her unpredictable moods and her furious outbursts of temper were almost impossible to live with. A bottleneck that she was, a pain in the neck. Florence served under her leadership for a year, and then her nerve began to break. <laughs> One day she was found crying her eyes out, and only to be comforted by an old African maiden, she came and sat beside Florence and said the most piercing thing that could ever be said to a missionary. She said, Florence, I have been here in this mission station over 15 years. And in the last 15 years, all you missionaries coming from the West, educated, devout, Brilliant, coming to the West, from the West, telling us that you have brought us a mighty Savior who could save to the utmost. But she said, I have never seen this situation with all its problems and complexities saved yet. Oh, you missionary coming from the West, telling us you have a mighty Savior who could save to the utmost. But I have never seen this situation with all its problems and complexities saved yet. What the anti-climates to hear something like that especially to a missionary, to an evangelist. But in spite of that, Florence was determined to stay, and stay she did, in order to make a difference to that region. And for one whole year, she, 
she read 1 Corinthians 13 to herself every day. Every day, 1 Corinthians 13 to herself. Paul's marvelous hymn of praise to love. And then things, slowly, things began to change. Finally, the glorious moment came when that senior missionary colleague knelt down with Florence and confessed, and finally they were reconciled. And she said to Florence, she said, I thank God for the day the Lord sent you out here to our mission stations. When I read that story, man, I was in tears. I was deeply inspired by Florence's dedications. And since then, 15 years ago, I too read 1 Corinthians 13 to myself almost every day, almost every day, not as spiritual as she was, almost every day. And since then, 1 Corinthians 13 became canonical. Hey, canonical. It's the canonical text of my daily devotion and the teleological principle of all my works, whether it be teaching, service, scholarship, marriage, or family. It becomes a teleological principle. May I say this? What great profits it is to meditate on the Word of God. The excellent way of, of love as a telos of our being, of our activities, of our knowing, be it at home or church or in any organization to which we are committed. May I say this? May I propose to do something like this this morning? To read 1 Corinthians 13 to ourselves, to apply it to ourselves, not to apply it to others, to personalize it as Paul himself has done. If I, did you hear, did you see the language? If I, if Dennis, if Joe, if Ivy, if Vivian, if I speak in the languages of men and angels and have not love, then I'm a resounding gun and a clanging symbol. You see, Paul personalized it, and we should personalize it. It is commonly understood that this hymn con contains three stanzas. I don't know why. Three stanzas. It fits me. I'm a three-point, old-fashioned preacher. Three-point sermons. I never use PowerPoint, but my points are PowerPoints. <laughs> you like that, eh? I'm getting nervous about... Could you hear me? I couldn't hear myself. The first stanza is verses 1 to 3, which speaks about the priority and the preeminence of love. The second stanza, verses 4 to 7, the portraits of love or the performance of love. The remaining section, the permanence of love. Let's think together, shall we? Read it to ourselves. Apply it to ourselves. Number one, and this is PowerPoint, okay? PowerPoint. The preeminence of love or the priority of love. Did you hear what Paul said? If I speak with tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. You see, there is a contrast that Paul made between love and gifts. The gift that the Corinthian prized most highly is the gift of tongue and, and languages. Not that it was wrong. Paul didn't say it was wrong. He picked up that gift which the Corinthian prized most highly, and in the exaggerated fashion, picturing a man who could speak, who could speak in a way that no one on earth could ever do. Oh, this person is so brilliant. He is gifted with supernatural brilliance, with this linguistic or oh, eloquence. He can speak all kinds of languages, humanly and divinely, with brilliance and eloquence, but has not love. He is an empty gong and a clanging cymbal, making all kinds of noises with no meaning, 
no melody, no music to it. It's a soulless ding, <laughs> a clanging cymbal. See, the gift of supernatural eloquence, the gift of linguistic brilliance apart from love is nothing. It is a soulless, meaningless ding which accomplishes nothing. An eloquent preacher can preach in such a loveless manner that the truth that he proclaims may be turned into a lie. In the critical way a lady said of a preacher, she said, hey, when I hear, when I hear that preacher preach, I wish he would never stop preaching. He would never get out of the pulpit. But, but when I see him, the way he relates to others, I wish he would never get into the pulpit again. It's a very strong statement against preachers. And this is why Jonathan Edwards, this explains why Jonathan Edwards, the reformed theologian, said of himself, he said, when I preach, when I write, I make it the aim of my life. Never to do it. If we were not motivated by love for those, for those to whom I preach and for whom I write. It's very telling, isn't it? Apart from love, our gifts accomplish nothing. Furthermore, he said, we ourselves are nothing apart from love. Now, he didn't say we are less than what we are or what we should be. He said, you are zero apart from love. Look at verse 1 later on. He said, if I have the prophetic power and understand all mysteries and knowledge and have not love, then I am zero. I'm nothing. Not that I'm less than what I should be, but I am zero. You see, if the Corinthian prized the values of tongue, St. Paul valued the gift of prophecy. A prophet is somebody who is close to the heart of God, near to the heart of God, sensitive to the mind of God, has the ability to perceive and receive God's word and communicate it in such a way so that the recipient can understand the ways, the works, and the words of God. By all mysteries and knowledge, Paul meant that, that brain power, that intellectual capacity to penetrate the mysteries of God, to understand divine truth and relate one to another in a very, very scintillating and created way. When we hear this person, when we are in their Bible study class, what a scholar that he is, what a great Bible teacher that he is. Oh, sisters and brothers, it could be done without love. The temptation to think of ourselves as the spiritual elite, as, as somebody who is more advanced, intellectually advanced than other, and the temptation to pontificate from the height of the intellectual tower and look contentiously, contentiously upon those people who don't measure up, who don't rise to the intellectual tower. That's lovelessness. Furthermore, Paul said, if, if I have a bold faith, bold faith that moves the mountains, oh, Bow faith, not bow head, but bow faith. The move the mountains, meaning a powerful faith that flattened the mountains. Apart from love, I am nothing. Now, when you talk about faith, he did not mean intellectual convictions, although it may be implied. It's about practical actions. Those people who are filled with the dynamism of faith, and they are able to dream big dreams and translate those dreams into actions. There is a dynamism of faith that feels a person and, and feels a person and fried a person. <laughs> and so that this person is able to accomplish great things and seizes many opportunities to 
achieve. In looking at the impossibility, he was said, what? What impossibility? We believe in God. Looking at the tight budget in the church, oh, they would shrug their shoulder and say, what? What tight budget? Uh, These are the people who are able to look at the impossibilities and not be afraid. They are the ones who conquers more territory. And this dynamite faith, we all want it. This dynamite faith is embodied in the slogan. In the slogan, I, I like this slogan very much. This dynamite faith is embodied in the slogan. Difficult things we will do immediately. Difficult things we will do immediately. Impossible things may take a little bit longer. Hey, you like that? <laughs> I like it. I wish I have it. You know, difficult things we will do immediately. But impossible thing may take a little bit longer. And these are the people who will build monuments, whose name appear in the headlines, in the Hall of Fame, whose biography we will write. It's wonderful to be in their presence, and yet their presence can be a nuisance. Write it down. Their presence can be a nuisance. Because this kind of faith will never suffer long, will never be patient with those people who are timid, those people who dare not risk or venture, and they will complain, get out of my ways, you are such a nuisance, you are holding me back. You see, there are church people who are slower. You see, I'm a very fast person. So I, uh, my mother worry about me a lot. You know, I'm a very, very fast person. I drive fast, you know, and therefore sometimes I got a ticket. You know, but I, I congratulate myself over the past 15 years, I've never had a ticket. In the previous, I, I drive fast, I speak fast, I act fast, I, I sleep fast. I can't believe it. And then my wife looked at me with a funny eye. I don't know where you are. Where you are? Are you in the middle or are you the last? I don't know what you are talking, what you are doing. <laughs> because I was too fast. And I always complain that why God sent me those people who are slower. <laughs> those people who are like snail, you know, snail. So snail-like people. And then I realized that these people, the slower ones may not be the weaker ones. They may be far more... <laughs> Stronger in many areas. You see, there are people in your church who are slower. You need to find ways to talk, to talk, and to deal with them in a loving manner. Because genuine faith is no bully. A loveless faith, such a loveless faith, would turn a beautiful virtue like love into a vice. Genuine faith deals with people in a loving manner, without which we are nothing, even when we possess a dynamic faith. Then Paul Push the envelope. If I give all, look at the extent of his giving, the sacrifice of his possession, if I give all. And then he pushed it even further. If I give myself to be burned, the ultimate sacrifice is the sacrifice of oneself, person, martyrdom. If I give my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. If I'm not motivated by love, I gain nothing at the judgment seat of Christ. You see, it is true to say that you cannot love without giving, right? You cannot love without giving. But it is also true to say that you can give without loving, right? There are many philanthropists who could throw money around. It may be for their own self-aggrandizements. If giving is motivated by self-interest, self-aggrandizement, self-glorification, then the noblest of gifts, even martyrdom, will lose its power and lose its value. For Christians, the only motive to give in is sheer attitude, attitude, sheer attitude for the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You see, the hymn writer put it so beautifully. 
love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all, right? Sheer gratitude towards the love of God, writing to the Corinthian church, a church so gifted and brilliant, and yet so full of strife and hostility. Paul said, gifts, services, and sacrifices in themselves are naked nothing. By themselves they accomplish nothing, and they profit ultimately no one. Apart from love, what we do may be unchristian, maybe even anti-Christians, and worse, maybe anti-Christs. Now you see why Paul insisted on the preeminence and the priority of love over gifts, services, and sacrifices, the most excellent way. Second stanza, the portrait of love or the performance of love. Now I use the word chosenly, the performance of love. You remember a hit song writer, Cole Porter? Anybody? Cole Porter wrote that, that, that hit song. What is this silly thing called love? I asked heaven, what is this silly thing called love? Right? You, if you were in my generation, older one, you know, older one, I say, oh, older one, older one, you, you remember this one. I asked heaven, what is this silly thing called love? Another song says, I just call to say I love you. What does that mean? Uh, Whitney Houston's, I will always love you. Right? That's, <laughs> what does that mean for crying out loud? You know? Send, I should be a singer. Century. <laughs> I was the singer, do you know that? I used to be fundraising using music. One day I may surprise you. Uh, you see, I will always love you for crying out loud. What does that mean? Century ago, Paul devoted the whole chapter to it. Notice, Paul did not get his answer from the creaturely world out there or from world philosophy. He got it from Jesus Christ. Why? Because the one who sat in the studios of Paul contemplations and imaginations was none other than Jesus Christ. The one who sat in the studios of Paul's contemplation when he painted this hymn of love was none other than Jesus Christ. This text is not a wedding text. Of course, you can preach it in wedding text, right? As a wedding text. This text is Christological. It's about Christ. Am I making any sense here? It's Christologically grounded that Christ was the mirror of Paul's contemplation of what love is. I happened to come across uh, the entrance of the philosophy department. I forgot which university. Carved into the entrance of the philosophy department in the American university were these words. Listen to this. Nestle into the mind of Plato and think from there. That's what a philosopher should do to nestle into the mind of Plato and to think from the mind of Plato. But may I rephrase or paraphrase, St. Paul would have said it differently. Nestle into the mind of Christ and think from there. And this is what he did. He nestled into the mind of Christ because Christ is the mirror of Paul's contemplation. And from there he deduces these beautiful portraits of love. Christ is patient, so love is patience. Christ is kind, so love is kind. Christ is not self-seeking, so love is not self-seeking. What is this silly thing called love? How does love look like in your family? 
How does it behave in your office? And in verses 4 to 7, he tells us what love is by describing what it does. Notice, Paul did not give us a theoretical definition of love. He doesn't define it, he describes it. You see, to know what love is, look at what love does. Just like you want to know who I am, you know a person by what he does, by what he speaks. You see, it is in the performative character of love that we know what love is. Paul did not give us a theoretical definition of love. He offers a vivid description of it. He doesn't define it. He describes what love does. To know what love is, is to look at what it does. Why? Because the language of love is not a noun. It is a verb. The language of love is not a noun. It is a verb. It is in the performative character of love that we know what love is. And yet the love of which Paul spoke is not primarily that of a feeling or emotion. It is primarily that of a will or attitude of the mind. The love that Paul had in mind is not eros, the love of sensual desire or passions. It is not filio, the warm feeling that we express to each other, friendship. It is agape love, the love of the will. It's the set to the mind that put others first. Always seek the highest interests and good of others, whether feelings are there or not. And it is for that reason that Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who spitefully, who spitefully use you. You see, philosopher Immanuel Kant made this comment about Jesus' ethic. He said, love as such is an impossible ethic, for love can never be commanded. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who spitefully use you. And philosopher Emmanuel Kant said, love as such is an impossible ethic because love can never be commanded. Now, if Emmanuel Kant was thinking about love as a feeling, feeling kind of, those people are feeling, feeling kind of love, then he was right that Jesus' ethic is impossible. But, but Jesus was not talking about feeling kinds of love. A feeling kind of love can never be generated. You can't generate feelings towards the enemies. But Jesus was not talking about feeling kind of love. He was talking about a love that proceeds from the will and act of the will, a set of the mind. In that sense, contrary to Immanuel Kant, love as an act of the will, a set of the mind, can be commanded in spite of one's subjective status. We can love our enemies even when we don't exhibit warm feelings towards them, the object of our love. We can love our family and friends because we are determined to do it, even though we do not feel like doing it. You see, there is a difference between wheeling yourself into loving or feeling yourself into loving. You see, when you wait for feeling, feeling never comes. Right? And those of us who are feeling nothing more than feeling, you are in trouble. You are in trouble. You know, uh, you, my mother said this to me. I, I keep quoting my mother. I miss my mom so much. She said, when she got married with my daddy, they have never met. It was prearranged. And I said, Mom, this is old fashioned. And she said, This is precious. You know, <laughs> if, you, if you will to love somebody, you can. That's my mother's you know, version. If you will to somebody, love somebody, you can. Don't wait until feelings to come and then you start loving. 
Because the love of the New Testament and of which Paul spoke in 1 Corinthians 13 has nothing whatsoever to do with feelings or emotions. It has everything to do with the act of the will and the set of the mind to look after the highest, to look for the highest good in others. Let's, let's think together. Look at some of them. In verse number 4, love is patient, love is kind. Christologically, Christ is patient, so love is patient. Christ is kind, so love is kind. Now, why did Paul begin with patience? I always wonder about that. The first one at the top of the list, although it was not an order of rank, but I, I kind of wonder why Paul began with patient love. I think the truth of the matter is we are very impatient people. <laughs> the truth of the matter is Christians must be realists. And Christians must, must be realistic, not romantic. Of course, romance help, But you must be realistic. And if you are going to love, you must be realistic about people. About real people. May I qualify? About real sinful creatures. Oh, this is harder, right? We must be realistic about people, real people and real sinful, sinful people. But what is real about real sinful people? <laughs> is that we are all suffering from a curvature, curvature, crookedness of the human soul. We're all suffering from the effects of the original sin, even though we are under the canopy of God's triumphant grace. We are still bound up with a group of sinners saved by grace, yet have weaknesses and failures and retreats and defeats and setbacks. And there are times when your best friend will let you down, your children will let you down, your spouse will let you down, the significant, significant others will let you down. And therefore, in the real world like ours, we must be realistic, not romantic. This is the way I pronounce the word, not romantic, but realistic about sinful human creature. May I say that the older I get, I just celebrated my 52 birthday and counting many more. You know, the older I get, the more I'm in touch with the horror and the terror, hey, horror and the terror of my systemic blood poison. Therefore, I need thee every hour. I need thee every... I read 1 Corinthians 13 to myself. I'm not kidding you. I'm kidding. Realizing that people lie to you and people lie about you. Oh, my goodness. And therefore, realism sets in and it requires that we be patient with the mistakes and failures and problems. Love suffers long. It, is, it suffers inconveniences without fighting back. It makes allowances for others. It is long temper. Not only love is patient, it is also kind. You see, kindness is the positive side of the virtue. The positive side of the virtue. Some people say, if you want to know what patience is, you must see kindness. Because kindness is proof of patience. Kindness is, is patience illustrated. A patient person is a kind person. And therefore there is reason why patience and kindness ought to be kept together. For instance, a person may appear to be very patient. In fact, he is not patient at all. Right? He doesn't possess the virtue of patience. He was wounded. An elder in the church was wounded. He didn't fight back. Looks like he was very patient. But actually he wasn't patient at all. He may be passively aggressive, waiting for an opportune time to strike, or strike, or struck too, right? You see, 
A person may look very patient, but actually isn't. Maybe that person couldn't care less. When you allow patience to become indifference, you see, I'm wounded. An elder was wounded, and he sat there looking at each other with the funny eyes. He couldn't care less. And when you allow that patience, patience to to be turned into indifference, that is precisely the opposite of love. Who was the one who said something so beautifully? Eli Weisel said, "The opposite of love is what? It's not hatred, but indifference." I do not hate my wife, but if I were indifferent towards her feelings, her struggle, then I don't really love my wife. And there are times when we are wounded, we may sit back and pretend that we have the virtue of patience. In fact, we aren't. Maybe we are act passively aggressive, or maybe we become indifferent, couldn't care less. When that happens, when that happens, anything goes. Anything goes. So, brothers and sisters, to prevent patience from turning into indifference, I think Paul put patience and kindness together. If you offend me, I can be patient, but beyond it, beyond it, I act towards you kindly, and that is the triumph of agape love. See, agape love seeks to be patient when wrong, and without letting letting that patience to be to be turned into or to be to be turned into indifference. It is kindly disposed towards the wrongdoer, and therefore, in a sense, kindness is patient illustrated. So, brothers and sisters, the two things must be together. How are we doing in this aspect? Have you been wronged by others? Are you really patient? Maybe not. Maybe you are into passive aggressions. Maybe you are into indifference. In order not to slide into indifference or passive aggressions. Let's act towards others, the wrongdoer, kindly. Be kindly disposed upon those who wrong against us. Let's move on. Love is not <clears throat> love is not jealous. Love is not boastful. You see, both jealousy and boasting focus on the differences amongst people. Jealousy and boasting focus on the differences amongst people. When you look at the differences, some differences fill a person with jealousy, right? For instance, when I see that you have a car better than mine, when your car is better than mine, that difference—if I focus on that difference—that difference consumes me with such jealousy that I wish the same car that you have for myself, or I wish a better car than your car, or worse, I wish you don't have what you have, right? <laughs> This is the better car that that the mine. You see, different. When you focus on the different, it consumes you with jealousy. When I focus on position that others have got, I no longer see them as people. But the promotion that I think that sh- that promotion should have been mine shouldn't be given to you. And jealousy focuses on those differences and ignore people. When I was a youth pastor many years ago. I was speaking to a group of teenagers, teens. In bitter rage, one teen girl literally hit, hit her best friend hard with an iron rod, to the point of sending her to the hospital for a week. As a young pastor, not knowing what to do with this, and I still remember we talked for hours in the little room, 
I asked her, why did you hit your best friend? She's your best friend. She's your childhood best friend. She loves you, doesn't she? And her reply sent a severe chill down my spine. She said, I hit her to hurt her because she is too beautiful. Because she is too good. Because she got all the attention which I wish for myself. She has been the brain in the Sunday school class. I can't stand her being the center of the attention. You see, she cannot handle the difference. And then she looked away from me, hoping that I would never see her tears welled up in her eyes. There is a civil war raging within her, her innermost being. And it's as explosive as the Vietnam War. You see, envy has broken friendship by the thousand. And that's why people call envy the green-eyed monster, the mental cancer. And Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30, call envy the rottenness, the rottenness of the bones. Look, look at the word, the rottenness of the bones. In other words, envy has a rotting effect upon physical, emotional, and spiritual health. Agape love handles well with the differences. It will reason like this. Others may have more spectacular gifts than mine. And agape love recognizes every gift proceeds from a loving heart and from a wise heart of God. And agape love transcends all these differences and sees the person for what he really is and sees the person the object of God's love and therefore the object of my love. Only a whole soul trusts in the goodness and the wisdom of God will enable us to overcome jealousy. You see, this is one of the greatest victories that I have ever won. Not to be somebody other than what God intends me to be. That's the greatest freedom. Every gift that we possess, we turn it, we turn it back to God in worship. And we turn it towards others in service of them. And when you do that, the differences don't matter. Amen? The differences don't matter. You can celebrate with the differences. You can cheer them on. And when you realize that those differences don't matter in their place, you recognize a living person. It's a living person. It's my spouse. Somebody that I could relate to and somebody that I could love. Love is not jealous. While some differences may consume us with jealousy, others make us boastful. When we feel that we have things that others don't have, we become boastful. Interestingly, isn't it? We often think that the opposite of boasting, what is the opposite of boasting? We often think the opposite of boasting is humility, right? The opposite of boasting is humility. But Paul said the opposite of boasting is love. Very strong. If you truly love, you will never boast. For love doesn't boast. You see, boasting does not enhance sweet communion amongst couples or communion with one another. It encourages hostile competitions amongst us. What do you do in boasting? In boasting, you are actually using people as a platform for your virtue. You're using people as a platform for your virtue. The one who boasts, pull others down in order to build himself up. And when I do that, I'm not seeking the highest good of others. I'm simply using people as a stage for my virtue. You know what? I'm very different from you. I want my differences to be so large, to loom so large, that everybody will pay attention to me. It's these differences that make a difference, and that make me, dif make me different from you. <laughs> so we want that. 
these differences to loom so large that people know about it and so that others may think more highly of us and these differences make us superior. The ultimate question becomes what others might think of us, might think of me. So we subtly or indirectly, we try to influence people's opinions. And in the process, we are telling them how good we are. Oh, I'm such a deep thinker than you. I'm such a better husband than you. I'm more deserving of all these honors and attention than others. When I do that, I no longer, I no longer love. What I want is your approval, your vote, your applause. And I'm not at all interested in you as a person. And that's why boasting is incompatible with love. Boasting is incompatible with love. The love of which Paul spoke about is agape love, which seeks the highest good of others. It doesn't use people. It serves people. Let's move on. Love is not arrogant. Again, love is not arrogant and love is not rude. The opposite of boasting is love. And the opposite of arrogance is love. Love is not proud, it's not arrogant. Love is not rude. Arrogant people are rude. And Paul linked arrogance and rudeness together. Together. Love is not arrogant, it's not rude. And I like J.B. Phillips' translations, beautiful translation of love is not rude. What did he, what did he, what did he write in place of these words? He said, love has good manners. Hey, how about that? Love has good manners. Love is always courteous, always well-mannered, always polished, always polite, always stylish. How about that? Yeah. Hey, hey, you like, you like this word, always stylish, right? Oh, this person is so stylish. In other words, he has, he has good manner. Love is always courteous, always well-mannered, always polite. Jesus Christ, who was love incarnate, graciousness and body was, was courteous towards the least, the lost, and the last. So, my brothers and sisters, if we are serious about Christ, and I believe we are, then good manners are no trivial pursuit. It is serious pursuit. If you are serious about Christ, then we need to pursue courtesy, especially in the area of proximity and equality. In our relationship with those who are closest to us, who are near to us, who are in such closest proximity to us, those who are equal to us, our spouse. Oh, there is a need for spousal courtesy. Spousal courtesy. Beverly Nichol wrote the book entitled, Are They the Same at Home? You should read that. Beverly Nichol. Examining prominent people in the public life. Wondering speculatively whether, whether they are the same at home as they are in the public. How are they at home around people who are their equal? Are they as courteous to their spouses at home as they are in the public? And this is an acid test for all of us. Are we the same at home as we are in the public? Some people become very cynical, very cynical, not cynical, I'm sick too, very cynical about home. And this person defined home. He said, home, what is home? Home is a place where you are tired of being nice to people. 
You like that? Home is a place where you are tired. Tired of what? Be nice to people. Unnice. It's so sad, isn't it? There's some truth to that. How many of us going home to our loved one, we are exhausted from work, having spent long hours in the office, energy spent in terms of trying to please your committee, trying to please your boss or, or faculty meeting. And then by the time you get home, you are exhausted. And then home becomes a place where you are exhausted. You are tired of being nice even to your loved one, to those who are near and dear. And we are so accustomed to each other. We're so used to each other. We're so familiar with one another. Some people say familiarity breeds contempt. Not so. I think familiarity breeds discourtesy. And when that happens, we no longer love our spouse. You see, familiarity does provide an occasion for discourtesy. Well, think about, think about your dating time. I know that some of you have to think a lot longer than others. Think backward during the time when you are so nice to your girlfriend. Oh, you would change your schedule. You would cross, you would cross the vast oceans. You would climb the highest mountains just to see that young little thing. Right? When you go out for a date, you will open the door gently and slide. Slide that young little thing inside the car. But now that you are married, you are no longer nice. You begin to shout. He said, don't, don't you have hands? Can't, can, can't you open the door by yourself? Are you handicapped? You know? And she used to be 95 pounds. Now she's 145. More clumsy than before because she's carrying your baby. And sometimes we take our spouses for granted. And precisely because of a lack of courtesy and considerations, homes have become boxing ring. And romantic dinners become courtroom for judgment and harsh criticism. And many people stay up late when they should be sound asleep. Right? Why? Because of the harsh, harsh, unkind words that are flung against each other. And in some extreme cases, people have to depend on tranquilizer in order to get into sleep. Allow me to say this. Courtesy is the best and the most effective tranquilizer. They could send your lover to sleep far quicker than any, meditation, any medication. I've tried that. Have you? We all do. Gentleness is the best lubrication. The best lubrication to a good marriage. It oils the gears of life and makes living together easier and happier. If you are serious about loving, then courtesy must be a serious, serious pursuit. Serious pursuit. You know Winston Churchill. When Winston Churchill was a prime minister of Great Britain, his marriage was one of the, considered one of the best examples. He was the epitome of loyalty and courtesy. Often before he gave a speech in the House of Commons, he would not begin until he had a favorable sign, a proven sign from his beloved wife. And everybody saw it. There was mutual respect and kindness evident in their marriage. And later on, somebody interviewed Mr. Churchill and asked, Mr. Churchill, if you could live again, what would you want to be? I like his reply. With a twinkle in his eye, he replied, what would I want to be? Mrs. Churchill's next husband. <laughs> Mrs. Churchill's next husband. I want to be the husband of the same wife. What a great benediction on marriage. What a monumental compliment to his wife. And that to me is stylishness. Eh? Write it down, write it down. Stylishness. Love is stylish. 
is well mannered, and this is the acid test for all of us, especially those of us who are older. Till death do us part, cannot cannot be done without courtesy. Without courtesy, then Paul went on and said, "What love is not self-seeking? Christ is not self-seeking, so love is not self-seeking." Now this talk allows me to bring in a lot of anecdotes. Hey, how about that? You like anecdotes, not just analysis, but anecdotes because love is the antidote, right? Oh, three A, right? Analysis. I have done some analysis, but now let me share with you my mother, who died six months ago. Last December, we had our last conversation together. Every year, I went back twice for the last five years just to spend time with my mother. And she said this to me. She says, "Son, I am very exhausted." She's eighty-seven years old. I have exhausted everybody. I know your love abounds, the family love abounds, but my strength is failing. I cannot receive any more of your love, and very soon your strength will be failing as well. It's time to let go, son. I have prayed many times that God will send God an angel to send me home. For four years I've been praying. God didn't answer my prayer, but God will answer your prayer. You are more righteous than me. Yeah, that's mummy's talk again.、Okay? More righteous than me. You're a pastor. You're a professor. You have. You have stronger efficacy. You have stronger. You have stronger power. That's the way she thinks, you know. So what can you? How can you argue against her, you know? <laughs> so I I prayed together with her, you know, and I said, "Mummy, this is probably the most difficult prayer that I have ever done." Holding tightly, and I prayed with her, words by words, she repeated after me, asking God to grant her wish to enter heaven. And her wish was granted six months ago. The last time I saw her, she said this to me, December. She said, "Next time when you see me, you will see me. You will not hear me." And so it was. I went back six months now. I'm still grieving the loss of my mum. I've never felt so disintegrated and insecure. My safe harbour is gone. And since then, Joe, Joe, you probably have noticed I've lost about fifteen pounds since then. She asked me to speak in her funeral service, which is 185th funeral that I have ever conducted and preached, the most difficult one. And in my last conversation with her, she said, "This son, when you miss me, be sure to put something of a pink color, like pink tie." So today I miss her. Put on something pink, a pink tie, because it looks real handsome on you. <laughs> She's right. She's right. <laughs> And then she said, "My boy, you know your boy, you know my your boy. When when she was born, when he was born, he was wrapped with pink, pink swaddling receiving blanket. Why? Because there, that day too many boys were born, like blue and pink, right? Now the hospital has both sides, pink and blue, right? At that time, when the baby was was wrapped in pink, I was I was shocked. I said, she or she? Oh, we are we have too many boys that day. So he was wrapped." With pink and grandmother, remember that. Then I asked her, "How could I remember? How could I remember you when you are gone?" Her answer was very simple: "Love is not self-seeking, but self-giving." This is the text that you have led me for the last five years. I read one Corinthians thirteen to my mother every time I went back to Malaysia to see her. 
And that was the text. Love is not self-seeking, but self-loving. It is in learning to give that I will be kept perpetually alive in your hearts. That's mommy's wish. That's quite a challenge given to me. It's learning in self-giving, in giving that I will be kept perpetually alive in your hearts. And then she gave me an assignment. She said, baby boy, that's the way she called me, baby boy. I'm 52 years old, still baby boy. <laughs> go and find, 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 go and find four needy women. Women, four. I said, why four? Because I have four sons whom I treasure and you're one of them. And this is the way you could remember me. Pick four women. These are four gifts. Four gifts. Present these gifts to all these four women. And I said, why women? She said, because I am a woman who has gone through a lot and I understand how women, young and old, think and feel. Women can be strong and if it is possible, choose non-Christian women. I said, why non-Christian women? He, and she said, Christian women are surrounded by, by church people already. That's the way she perceived it. What happened? Surrounded by... By, by needs already quicker than anybody else. But the non-Christians who need you must go out and find them and meet their needs. And I said, where do I find them? She said, that's your problem. <laughs> you, are, you are a public figure. You should know a lot of people. Just a small gift to each one to assure them that real love does exist. God's love and my love. And given that I'll be kept alive in your hearts. Number one, Find a young, young unmarried woman, unmarried woman. Give her a little gift and tell her that life can be sweet even when facing uncertainties and fears. Bring my blessing to her, hoping that she will find a good mother-in-law and she will find a right mate. Second, go and find a young widow like me. She said, like me. She became a widow when she was 43 years old. She said, your father left me all too soon. I just began to know your father for 27 years and she left me all too soon. And I was left very alone to take care of all 10. She was only 43 years old and she knew the hardship that a young widow faced. Despair is not an option. Determination to live for the sake of the 10 children was her choice. Thirdly, find a divorcee. Somebody who has gone through divorce and offer my gift to her, my blessing to her. Assure her that she is not a bad person. She just had a bad experience. She's not a bad person. Tell her to be strong and tell her to make her children stand tall by just being there at every moment of their growth. And finally, find a retiree of 65 years old. Encourage her to live graciously and die gratefully so that people might know how precious sweet life can be. If we hold onto a proper perspective of life, worldly possession is not everything. Motherhood, learning to be a good mother, a grandma, mother-in-law matters most because that's the thing which people would remember and would treasure. You see, now these four women have a story to tell, that they have been loved, they are loved. And I too, as her son, have the challenge to meet to be mother-like as she has sought to be Christ-like, self-giving. And I would say this, agape love has triumphed in her life. And to a certain extent has triumphed in my life as well. What great prophets it is.
to read 1 Corinthians 13 for our own benefits. Let's move on. Love is not irritable. Our Bible translations add the advert, love is not easily irritable. In the original language, the word easily is not there. The translations add in the word easily. While it must be translated by somebody who is easily anger, easily broke, provoked. And that's the area that I struggle the most. As a public figure, I'm a busy man like many of you, with many things to do, many emails to respond, phone messages to reply, people's lunch to meet. And when my son comes into my study room and disturbs my study time, I become irritable. Right? And I could excuse myself by saying, oh, it's not that I don't love my boy. It's not about loving. It's everything about serving and dedication. <clears throat> I'm about God's work. I'm being spiritual. You see, don't disturb me. And I get irritated when people interrupt my study time. Ultimately, they should be serving me rather than I serving them. And I get angry because I'm self-centered, self-serving, which is the contradiction of love. I want everybody to revolve around my schedule, my routine, my agenda. And when that doesn't happen, others <clears throat> irritate me. And I fail to respond lovingly. I become angry when, my son, when I see my son, those who are nearest, and my spouse and children, and other family members who are nearest and dearest, when I see them as interruptions, then irritability surmounts when I consider them as interruptions. But when I consider them as interventions, they are God's gift to me. These are the people who need my love, and I need their love. They are, a, they are God's gift to me. I do not view them as interruption. I view them as intervention. I welcome it. I welcome their presence. I welcome their space. And only then you could have an attitude that literally purifies you and revolutionizes you. Once you see people as intervention, not interruption, the irritability subsides. And consequently, inside me, there is a transformation within. Let's move on. <clears throat> love keeps no record of wrong. In other words, love forgives. It doesn't pronounce judgment on the wrong. <clears throat> How are we doing in this aspect? Two friends are walking, walking through the desert. Along the way, they had an argument. Friends' argument. One friend slapped the other in the face. The one who was slapped wrote on the sand, Today my best friend slapped me in the face. They walked together until they found an oasis and where they could take a bath. As they were taking a bath, the one who was slapped got stuck in the mud and started drowning. But the friend who slapped him saved him. And after he recovered from the near drowning, he wrote on the stone that today my best friend saved my life. The one who slapped him was the one who saved him. And so he asked, Hey, after I hurt you, you wrote it on the sand. Now when I save you, you wrote it on the stone. Why? The friend replied, When somebody hurts me, I should write it down on the sand so that the winds, winds of forgiveness can blow it away, can erase it. But when somebody helps me and is good to me, I must engrave it in the stone. So that no wind can erase it, can blow it away. This is how to learn to love, not to keep record of wrongs. Learn to write your hurts in the sand. 
it will be gone. But learn to carve those blessings and benefits into the stone. It shall not disappear. And this is how to love without keeping any records of wrongs. And Paul went on and said, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Agape love does not gloat over people's mistakes, doesn't wish people's harm or misfortune. It rejoices with that which builds, that which makes people whole, that which makes people closer to God and to each other. It doesn't delight in the spirit of destruction. As a young pastor, 10 years ago, I was preaching in Western, Western Canada. In a church better unnamed, although you want me to name it, but I'm not telling you. I had a great time preaching in Western Canada in the church better unnamed. After I returned to Toronto, I received a letter, a hypocritical letter, attacking me and attacking the sermons that I have given at that church. Look at this. He criticized. He said, Dennis, why can't you, why can't you be like Chuck Swindle? who does something for the kingdom. I thought I did something for the kingdom too. That was a very sharp criticism. And then he said, why can't you preach like Ravi Zachariah, who preaches so passionately like St. Paul? Ravi Zachariah preaches passionately, yes. Like St. Paul? Have you heard St. Paul preach? <laughs> what are you talking about? Ravi is my friend, a generous man who footnotes me in his book. And one should never compare a friend to another friend. Although sometimes we did. And then the other statement, why can't, you, why can't you be half of Pastor Ross Ingram? Ross Ingram was my mentor, whose gentleness is evident to all. Man, that really hurts, no? Ross is my mentor. One should never compare a mentee to a mentor to whom I'm indebted. To be honest, I was very, very angry. I literally pray for his death. I pray that he will vanish from my mind, but, but his letter kept surfacing. His letter. It was in a pity poor me party that I sat down and wrote a reply to this man. It was six pages, the fastest letter I have ever written. Single space, with no more than six minutes. Six minutes, I, I was quite good, you know. And after finishing it, I felt so good about it. Man, I got you now. And I wrote with so many religious, hot religious words, bitter words to literally kill and destroy even far worse than this letter, the letter that this man wrote. And with a certain amount of ego, egocentric joy and self-gratification, I began to write down his mailing address. And then I realized the letter was sent from a trailer park. Trailer park. People living in the trailer park area are low-income people. And only those low-income people who live in the trailer park area. And I wonder what on earth has trailer park reference has got anything to do with the preacher of Toronto. But the Spirit convicted me. It propelled me into prayer. And then I discovered the most horrifying truth about myself. <laughs> that in that communion with God, the Spirit convicted me that I too have the spirit of destruction. Just like this man. Perhaps with greater potency. I too delight in evil. I too want to maim and to kill. And that which I preach against is that I'm guilty of. It's that which I'm guilty of, the spirit of destruction. And after repentance, I threw away the letter. I was glad I did not use email. 
So sisters and brothers, when there is controversy, controversy in relationship, never use email. I was glad I didn't use email, for that might have damaged another soul. The Spirit convicted me to write, and it was the shortest letter I have ever written. I said, dear brother, you may be right about me, but it's not that important, is it? Have you ever realized how much God loved a miserable, damnable sinner like you and I? That he should call me a miserable, damnable sinner to preach the gospel of love and forgiveness? And I signed it. God loves you. Over a week later came a reply. Very short, very powerful, very memorable. He said, dear preacher, you are right. What really matters is not who is right and who is wrong, who is more right, who is more wrong. What is most important is the love of God, and I need it, I need it most. And you have shown that, that love to me. You did the right thing, not to kill, but to love, not to delight in evil. And I promise to love rather than attack. Brothers and sisters, I don't have too many victorious stories. This one I could live on for the rest of my life. The victory of agape love. <clears throat> I don't. I don't have too many. Hey? We don't have too many victorious stories. This one I could live on for the rest of my life. This is the triumph of agape love. Amen? And joy fills my heart as I read his letter. I mean, to be honest, I didn't like him. Even when I talk about him, the guy ticked me off. I didn't feel about it. And see, agape love has nothing whatsoever to do with feelings. It's an act of the will. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Finally, the final stanza, and I must close. The permanence of love. Love never fails. It's always efficacious. It never suffers ruin. Your car will suffer ruin, but love shall never suffer ruin. It's permanent. It endures forever. Spiritual gifts will end. Prophecy, tongue, knowledge, spiritual gifts will end, but love will remain forever because it is eternal. And when perfection comes, when we enter into the final consummation and glory, those gifts will vanish. When we are home in heaven, we will see God face to face. There is no need for gifts. Why? Because we shall be illumined by the glory of God himself. And what we now know is partial at best. But in the consummated eternal state, we should know fully. During that time, gifts of partial knowledge and prophecy will be done away. And then Paul illustrates in verse 11 the transient elementary character of gift by his own life. He said, this life may be compared to a childhood when our understanding and thoughts are very limited, very immature, very childish. And the eternal heavenly state could be analogous to full adulthood during which the childish condition will be a thing of the past. Spiritual gifts are part of this transitory age in which we are living, the church age in which gifts are beneficial. But they shall be done away when we reach, when we reach the consummated state. And here on earth, we see things dimly and darkly. In His presence, we shall see clearly and distinctly. When we see Him face to face, meaning without obscurity, without obstruction of vision, without obstruction of vision, we shall know fully not that we become omniscient or all-knowing, the attribute which is exclusively God. Our knowledge of Him will be clearer, will be fuller, will be richer than it is now. Notice, Paul didn't say knowledge will be done away. He said the gift of knowledge. Because in heaven there will be, there will be knowing, there will be growth. Because the Christian life is always a life 
of the revelation of God. Now and throughout eternity, our life is a life of the revelation of God and our response of faith to that revelation now and throughout eternity. We are going to know more of God as God continues to unfold Himself. And there, we shall be so transformed by God that we will respond to Him and we continue to live by that revelation of God. The Christian life is also a life of hope. For we who are in Jesus Christ are the people of hope now and throughout eternity. For the Christian, the best is yet to come. Hope will always be before us. As new revelations come to us in heaven, when God presents himself to us, we respond by faith and we hope for that intimacy. We enter into the full enjoyment of God and his blessings. Leon Morris said it well. He said the blessings of the, the blessing in Jesus Christ are not distributed and received once and for all. Not like a bag of gold pieces distributed and received once and for all. They are continually distributed and they are continually received now and throughout eternity. Why? The permanent essence of who we are is not to have anything of our own. We are eternally helpless and poor. We are eternally contingent upon God and His blessing. And the fact of who we are is the fact of contingency and the fact of receptivity. Receptivity. You see, we are forever dependent upon God and we are forever the recipient of God's revelation, of God's blessings now and throughout eternity. And therefore, blessings in Jesus Christ are not distributed to us once and for all. They are here with us now and throughout eternity so that always now and throughout eternity we are the people of faith, the people of hope, most importantly, we are the people of love. For, the, for love is the greatest. Abide three things, faith, hope, and love. Love is the greatest. Now, why love is the greatest? Let me give you two reasons and then we will close. John Calvin said it well. He said, faith and hope are our own. He means faith and hope are for our benefits. For our benefits. But love is for others. For others, love is self-diffusive. Love is diffused into others, includes others, embraces others. Agape love is self-diffusive, not self-enclosed. It goes outside itself, overflow into others, and that's why it is the greatest. Where faith and hope for our own benefit, for our own enjoyment, but love is always embracing of others. It goes outside of itself and flows into others. The second reason why love is the greatest, it's because it is the name of God. It is the nature of God. It is the godness of God. Right? It is who God is. Essentially, God is love. And love is God's way of being himself. And God's way of being for us, the way he relates to us. And that's the basis of our relationship to him and the basis of our relationship to each other. To love is God's light. It is the greatest like God himself is the greatest. To be inclusive, to be diffusive amongst others is the greatest virtue. So my brothers and sisters, what has been the top priority in your church, in your family? The Corinthians have gotten their priority wrong, focusing on the partial and the passing away of the transient, temporary nature of gifts when their focus should be on love, the greatest virtue. Love is the greatest virtue, and therefore that which is the greatest deserves and demands 
the greatest of our time, the greatest of our attention, the greatest of our energies. And that which is of eternal value ought to be the top priority. The greater value, the greater the priority. Love is God light. Let it reign supreme in our family. Let's do it. Let's do something beautiful for Christ and for each other. Amen? Amen. I'm done. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.